And now, The Mentors, one of the most popular and unique shows on the radio today. Each week, one of our four remarkable CEOs, including Tom Lord, John Phillips, and Rick Brutico, will challenge your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their success and for consistently putting people first, treating employees and customers with respect, and helping others succeed, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Now, here's your mentor. Welcome. I'm Tom Laurie, and I'll be your host today. Thank you for joining us. Today, our guest mentor is Rich Kogard, who may be known to many of you. He's the author of Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement, and this will be our topic today. Rich is known for being an expert at the intersection of business and innovation. He is the publisher and columnist of Forbes magazine, best-selling author of The Soft Edge, where great companies find lasting success, a book about values, in addition to his recent book. He's an economic and market forecaster, entrepreneur, angel investor, and board director, and he's the founder of Silicon Valley's premier business and tech forum, The Churchill Club. And he is a keynote speaker, highly sought after, to Global 1000 Companies. As a top book reviewer, I received a copy of this new book, Rich's new book, Late Bloomers, uh, in the spring, just before it was published. And as some of you know, I've been working with people in transition through my church since 2001, and this book really resonated with me. I immediately reached out to Rich to ask him if he would serve as a guest mentor, and he responded within 10 minutes and said he'd love to. This is really an important topic. I should say topics, as it touches on two important themes, pressure on kids to overachieve and the perception of failure by those over 30 who haven't reached levels that you see on the cover of Inc. magazine. So let's get started and welcome, Rich. Thanks for uh, joining us today in the studio. I'm delighted to be here, Tom. So what are you actually doing today? What is, I've, I know you're the, uh, the publisher, but what other things have you got going? I gave some list, but where is your time being spent? Yeah, to be fair, now that I'm in my 60s, my career as publisher of Forbes has entered what I would call its emeritus phase. I do a lot of our conferences. I'm the MC of our annual Global CEO Conference. I do a lot of speeches at Forbes events, and I'm the lucky son of a gun who gets to host Forbes investor cruises on crystal cruise ships. <laughs> but I also uh, write books. I uh, consult with a couple companies and um, have a uh, have a rich and fulfilling life right now. And this book, there was a catalyst. Something happened in Palo Alto. Tell us what happened and how that inspired you to write this book and actually do a lot of research. This, this wasn't off the top of your head. You did quite a bit of research. Well, number one is that I've always regarded myself as a late bloomer, and we can go into the details of that if you wish. Really some pretty pathetic lack of achievement all throughout my mid-20s and late-20s. But I feel that I was very fortunate that I that all happened during an age when it was easier to make a recovery. We didn't have social media. We didn't have the pressures that we put on kids today. And so although in my mid-20s, I was not capable of holding any kind of a serious job. 
other than security guard, dishwasher. Nothing wrong with those jobs, but if you've got a college degree at a good university, you should be able to do better than that, but I wasn't able to. And finally began to blossom in my late 20s. I always wondered if that would be a valuable story to share with people as embarrassing as it was, particularly at some of the low points. And I kind of put that aside, and it periodically would pop up in my brain. But living in Palo Alto, California, fairly said to be the epicenter of Silicon Valley, a neighbor of, of, of elite Stanford University, high-pressure environment, is as high-pressure as they come in the United States, the word was getting out, first in the local media and then in the national media, that there was an epidemic of anxiety, depression, and tragically enough, suicides at Palo Alto's three high schools. In fact, a writer named Hannah Rosen for Atlantic Monthly wrote a cover story in August 2015 called The Silicon Valley Suicides. There were six of them, three at one high school, two at another, and, and, and one at a private girls' school. And that was just the tip of the iceberg because beneath that there were more than 40 hospitalizations for what is called suicide ideation. That is, kids who were actively talking uh, either on social media or with people that they were thinking about doing that too. And those numbers were accumulated by March of the school year. So if you extrapolate toward the middle of June, you probably wind up with something like 60 hospitalizations. And I thought, what, what is going on here? We're living in one of the most dynamic economies, uh, microeconomies in the whole world, Silicon Valley, and um, affluence galore. Uh, these kids have so much to look forward to. You talk about privileged kids, kids who go to Palo Alto high schools are privileged kids. And yet there was this level of despair. And so I really dove in to figure out why and was really quite shocked to find, though it was certainly in the wind around where I live, was shocked to find the level to which these kids feel subjected by the pressures of getting straight A's in advanced placement courses and getting into the most elite universities in the world. And if they fail to do that, somehow they feel like they're losers. And I, it's interesting, this morning on the radio, I heard that uh, anxiety uh, and depression with teenagers is up 60% just over the last few years. So this is a national problem, not just a Palo Alto problem. And, and even an international problem. I talked to the, the person who's going to be the next prime minister of Singapore, and he used to be the, uh, he's now the finance minister, he used to be the education minister. And he said the same thing exists in Singapore, same thing exists in Hong Kong, London. You go all around the world, and wherever you have these economic super cities, you have a tenant with that, these super pressures that aspirational parents and the, and the school system is putting on these kids. And what do you think the root cause of all of this is? Tom, I think it has to do with the economy. If you look at the two most lucrative parts of, of the American economy over the last 10 years, they would be Silicon Valley kinds of high tech and Wall Street kinds of high finance. Both of those industries are, are very biased, quite frankly. They screen very heavily for or young people who went to maybe one of 10 universities, schools like Stanford, MIT, Harvard Business School, and, um, and they both are in love with what you might call rapid algorithmic giftedness. That turns out to be correlate you know, with a good, being a good software programmer or a good high-frequency trader. 
and um, the SAT really gets to that rapid algorithmic giftedness. Well, we're going to come back in a, after a break and talk some more about the children, the parents, and then the late bloomer. We'll be right back with Rich Cargard, the publisher and com- publisher emeritus and columnist for Forbes. We will continue this discussion when we return. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and we are with Rich Carlgaard, publisher and columnist for Forbes, best-selling author, and an economic and market forecaster. We're talking with Rich about late bloomers. And when we were in the last segment, we're talking about the pressure that kids are experiencing that is leading to high degrees of anxiety and depression. Let's continue with some of the root. So how do the parents, I mean, a couple of things. How do the parents play a role? Because obviously they do. We saw recently the scandal with the briberies of uh, wealthy people getting their kids into various schools. And so the parents are playing a role and... Well, the parents are playing a role, maybe wittingly or maybe unwittingly. Uh, I hate to attribute this kind of a bad motivation to parents, but but it does seem to occur, and the college bribery scandal would indicate that that some parents do think this way. Uh, It's really fun on the cocktail circuit when somebody asks how your kids are doing to say they're at MIT. There are bragging rights that, that go with that. Now, underneath that is the more legitimate concern Un, uh, mostly unwarranted, I believe, that if their kids don't get off to this rocket start, which an elite university makes possible, uh, that somehow they're going to fall behind and never catch up in an age of rampant economic change driven by technology. <clears throat> this whole technology juggernaut that Silicon Valley has created is picking up speed. The evolutionary pace of digital technology is not slowing down. It might be slowing down at the semiconductor level, but on all other levels, um, the power of the cloud, the power of uh, 4G going to 5G, all of those things are literally transforming industry and society almost faster than we can deal with it. And I think that kind of fear that where my kid is going to fit in into a future economy that is, that is on this escalator somewhere, going to somewhere maybe propels a lot of these parents. And then they, I think a lot of parents, particularly uh, in some of the cities I named, you have two working parents, and they probably outsource too much of their parenting to counselors, tutors, things like that. My wife is on the board of a small ballet company in in San Jose, and she says parents casually talk about spending $50,000 over a four-year high school career in terms of tutoring, um, SAT prep, and all of those kinds of things. You just can't show up and take the SAT test today. God forbid, you know, that you're that kid who's so casual about it or clueless or is from a, an economic class where it's not even known that this is something you were supposed to study for for five years. And when, as you're talking, I think of my own childhood. And I grew up in northern Illinois, somewhat agricultural area. And we weren't scheduled, highly scheduled, and we went out and cut down trees and played in the woods. And did, so that childhood is lost to most kids today. And there's a, it would seem to me there's a, a lot of value in that freedom as a kid to go and explore. 
Yeah, and books have been written about this. There's a really influential book called Free Range Kids, um, or at least the topic was this idea of free range kids that were w- overscheduling kids today. So you go back. What's What's interesting about this all this early pressure, Tom, is does it produce anything useful other than probably giving a kid a response to that pressure positively an early leg up into getting into these elite schools? But does having that elite school background add up to what everybody thinks it's supposed to add up? Google, um, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, the two founders of Google, were, of course, got perfect SAT scores. They were brilliant young men. Uh, They were PhD students at Stanford when they started Google. And they had this idea that they would hire people in their own image. And they used to ask people what they scored on their math SAT when they interviewed them for a job at Google, when the company was small enough that they were still involved with the interviews. Jeff Bezos uh, did the same thing up until um, at least Business Week writer Brad Stone, uh, in his biography of Bezos, said, until 2014, would ask people what they got on their math SATs. I spent a week with Bill Gates once in the 90s, and he used the term IQ all the time as a measure of who's good and who's not around Microsoft. Anyway, getting back to Google, Google actually tested if there's any correlation between your success at Google and where you went to school and what your SAT scores were, thinking there would be a really strong correlation. It turns out that the correlation was much weaker than they had thought and basically disappears after three to five years. I started my career in healthcare with American Hospital Supply Corporation, which merged with Baxter. And to move ahead in that corporation, they didn't look at your SAT scores. As a matter of fact, when they went out and hired, they hired a lot of athletes. And then before you got promoted, they sent you to an industrial psychologist named Dr. Doty. And if you were dotyized and got a good doty, you could move forward. So it was interesting to me as a young guy is that the corporation culture was if you want to move ahead, you got to get through doty, which created its own uh, profile of people at American Hospital Supply, which was more on the EQ side than the IQ side. And American, you may not remember, ended up being one of the most successful companies in terms of grooming people to take on a lot of responsibility. But it's a different approach. Uh, than uh, the IQ side. Yeah, you could go too far in one direction or another, and and you need to course correct, because certainly when you look at the composition of teams within successful organizations, you you find a diverse thinking style. I think of Steve Jobs, um, who was a brilliant man, but a very flawed leader his first time around at Apple. And when he came around the second time, it was as if he had gone into a phone booth (laughs) and came out with a uniform that said, Super CEO. Still with his flaws, but he was able to compensate for them. And one of the things he did was he hired a diverse group of really good people who were his direct reports. One of them, Tim Cook, um, still runs the company today, Um, unlike Steve Jobs in every way in personality. Or somebody more like Steve Jobs in personality, Johnny Ive, the designer, who did leave earlier this year. But um, Jobs hired diverse thinkers and was loyal to them, and and it produced the extraordinary renaissance of Apple. Now, Gallup uh, has, for many years, uh, offered a program called Strengths Finders, and it gets to finding out what the gifts are that we have, whether it's being smart or 
there's 30 different gifts I think that we can have. And uh, the guy, Don Clifton, who developed this program, uh, wanted to understand what success in life and career was all about. And what he found is that people that were really successful doubled down on what they did well. And Steve Jobs is one of the great examples. He wasn't well, we aren't, none of us are good at everything, right? But he doubled down on those things that he did well and he was uh, successful. But we, we try to pigeonhole people into being certain people, don't we? Well, we do. And that's what school is doing with this, with this outsized pressure on kids to score straight A's in advanced placement courses and knock it out of the park on the SATs. Some kids are going to be naturally gifted and motivated to do that. The vast majority of kids are going to find that their gifts lie elsewhere. So to use, uh, imagine you're the most potentially gifted carpenter in your whole city. You could be the greatest carpenter, you know, an artist in your fingertips that was ever produced by your city. The problem being that you never got a chance to even be a carpenter. You didn't grow up among carpenters. You didn't, you weren't exposed to that. And the school system sure as heck didn't select for that. Schools today, particularly schools in affluent communities, are selecting for how well you do on standardized tests and how well you do on grades. Your gifts may be all over, you know, all over the map. As a former runner, I think, um, what if, uh, I love track and field because you have everything from the 100-meter dash to marathon runners to pole vaulters to shot putters. Imagine if they gave everybody on that diverse team, the track and field team, one test to determine where they were, whether they could be on the team, and it was how well they ran the 100-meter dash. Well, you'd have no distance runners. You'd have no shot putters. You know, you'd have no javelin throwers. You'd be a team entirely composed of one kind of an athlete. Well, I ran track also. Uh, I ran the hurdles, and I did some long-distance running. But when we come back, we're going to talk some more about that, and we're going to talk about the late bloomer, talk a little bit more about your career. We're with Rich Carlgaard the publisher and columnist for Forbes. We'll continue our discussion in a few minutes. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie. Our guest today is Rich Carlgaard, who, outside of his duties at Forbes, is avail which also he writes in his what he writes is available in print and online. He's an entrepreneur, angel investor, and a board director. And we're talking about the late bloomers. So we talked about the pressure on kids, the role of parents, finding your gifts. Uh, you, you know, and one of the things I wanted to note when you were talking in the last segment, you know, Clayton Christensen has written a great book called Disrupting Class, and his whole thing is, he's got two areas now in terms of his life, and that's better delivery of healthcare, better delivery of education. And he gets at this educational thing and the beauty of having digital, uh, let's say streaming education on the videos and all of that, allowing kids, you're talking about the artist who's in a classroom on the conveyor belt, you called this the conveyor belt. Uh, they can get, they may have to stay on the conveyor belt, but they can do some other things along the way to develop their gifts. Maybe you have some thoughts on that. Well, I, I find Clint Christensen to be one of the most admirable people I've ever met, and I've met him on several occasions. He wrote a foreword to my book, uh, The Soft Edge. What a, what a wonderful thinker, what an ethical thinker, a man of great faith. And I think he's right that uh, universities and colleges that don't adapt, um, particularly the ones that are not the flagship state universities in their state, 
or among the you know top ten or twenty private elite schools, if, if or, or colleges that aren't one of those, they're going to have to become more practical. And really, I think there's a huge market for them, by the way, and that's the late bloomer market, the kids who weren't superstars in high school, which is most of us. You know, another guy that I think is on the side of angels is Mike Rowe, the dirty jobs guy. Right. You know, he almost single-handedly has made the, you know, the, the, the blue-collar skilled labor jobs – uh, skilled trade jobs seem glamorous and noble once again. And this is one of the flaws that we have in public schools today, that only one out of 20 public schools has, has what we used to call in our day, Tom, shop class, but today would be a skilled trades class. And the skilled trade jobs are really great for identifying people who aren't necessarily going to be the ones who are going to get great grades and go to elite universities, but have these gifts elsewhere in carpentry, welding, you know, any number of places. And by the way, just because you go on that track, they pay well. <laughs> you know, you can make with overtime $100,000 of some of those jobs at age 20 or 21. Um, and you don't have to stay in them forever. You can, uh, w- wouldn't you, if you were running some kind of an industrial plant, really like the kid who is an HVAC tradesperson who went back and got a, you know, an engineering degree they would see both sides right. of the issue. They would be motivated. I, you know, we every year between Christmas and New Year's, my wife and I go down to the Palm Springs area, Indian Wells, and we rent a condo. And we rent the condo from a guy who's a plumber. <laughs> now, how did the con- how did the plumber get to own a property in Newport Beach, in uh, Indian Wells, and some other high? Pra- he built a plumbing firm. And so there are so many tracks for the, uh, for the skilled tradesperson um, that, I, and I think that it's just completely disrespected by the public school system today. Thus, having Mike Rowe is really a blessing. This is Tom Laurie. You're listening to the Mentors Radio, and today we're with Rich Carlgaard, author of Late Bloomers: The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. So let's flip from the pressure and some of these things. And um, how do you define a late bloomer? What is the right definition? Yeah, that's, uh, that's really a, a key question. And I was surprised when I spent four years doing the research for Late Bloomers, the book, that a medical or clinical definition of, of late blooming didn't exist. It might be referred to parenthetically in kind of a negative way, um, as in, you know, what's wrong with this uh, kid who lives in the basement of his parents' home at, at 26? Is he lazy or a late bloomer? I think, number one, if you look at it from a chronological standpoint, a late bloomer is somebody who comes into their own simply later than other people's expectations. They might find their gifts in their late 20s rather than in their teens. They're, somebody like me, I think that I was just so extremely physically and mentally immature that that had a great deal to do with my inability to comport myself in a, in a functioning productive adult way until I was in my late 20s. Then I think there's almost the metaphysical definition of a late bloomer, and that is somebody who's found that perfect intersection of their God-given gifts and their, their passions, but going beyond the word passion to mission, because a mission is a passion you'll sacrifice for. Right. You can feel passionate about you know a pizza that you just ate or a movie you just watched. That perfect intersection of what you were put on here on earth to do 
with that sense of mission and and love. And when you find that, you'll bloom because you'll feel like you're being pulled towards some higher destiny as opposed to being pushed by others. And when you feel like you're being pulled by God or whatever you want to call your higher power or destiny, you never burn out. You burn out when you're pushed by others. You'll never burn out if you're being pulled toward something that has your name on it. And how do people find that? Well, I think it takes patience and discovery. And and again, I, I point my finger at the school system, and, and we're not allowing that. We're basically, when we're putting kids on what I call this conveyor belt to early success, which involves standardized testing, standardized testing, and more standardized testing, and all the pressure for grades, we're asking them to trade their youthful curiosity for a determined focus too early. We should be nurturing their curiosity. And there are nations around the world that frankly do a better job than we do in the United States at that. Finland um, doesn't expose kids to reading, writing, and arithmetic until they're age seven. Wow. That goes completely against everything you're talking about. Completely here. against every. You know, here in the United States and wealthy cities like New York City, um, you can spend $50,000 a year on a preschool. And you go to the websites of these preschool and they, they guarantee a a multi-building campus, note the word campus, <laughs> and immersion in uh, more than, you know, several languages, and classical music, three and four-year-olds, three and four-year-olds. And the message is not so subtle, and that is that, hey, you affluent parents in New York City, if you don't do this now, uh, you'll have only yourself to blame 15 years from now when your kid doesn't get into Harvard. So now you've now there's a, the, so we've, we've talked to so the backlash. Now you, I I go back to my experience with people that are in transition. That company gets acquired, it's a startup, it doesn't get funded. And all of a sudden they end up in our program, and they could be anywhere from thirty and their forties and even fifties and sometimes sixties, and they're distraught. So what's the message for them? What because this gets into the reinvention, finding your strengths, and what's the message for those? Well, people? I think there are two messages here, and they're both positive. One is has to do with the neuroscience of the human being. That uh, there was a great 2015 study done jointly by Harvard, MIT, and Massachusetts General Hospital that asked a simple question: At what age do we cognitively peak? And the answer is complex. Depends what cognitive ability we're talking about. So rapid cognitive processing speed and working memory do tend to peak earlier in our 20s. But the whole range of attributes that support communication skills, empathy, EQ, uh, leadership skills, uh, all of those only come into our fullest powers in our 30s, 40s, and 50s. And there's even a strong neurological case for what we've called through the ages wisdom. Which is something that uh, as we get older, it seems like we're getting more of, right? Yeah. Well, we can go into that after the break. Okay. So we're going to come right back, and we're going to talk about that after the break. Uh, we're with Rich Carlgaard, the publisher and columnist for Forbes. This is Tom Laurie. This is the Mentors Radio. If you have any questions or feedback, call anytime at 844-810-8255. That is 844-810-TALK. And now... Back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and we are with Rich Carlgaard, publisher and columnist for Forbes, best-selling author, 
And we're talking about his latest book, Late Bloomers. And in the last segment, when we closed out, we were talking about two things that the so-called late bloomer, the person that's kind of stuck later in life, who missed this great being a billionaire by the time he's 22, there were two things you were talking about uh, that they, that provide hope. One had to do with the neurosciences and what they've learned. And the other was? Well, the other one was um, there, there are ways that you can deal with things that are keeping you stuck. Um, late bloomers in a society that worships early bloomers are going to have issues about confidence, um, self-doubt. Um, they're going to be wonder whether when it might be appropriate to quit or stick with something. Um, because if things haven't worked out perfectly for them, they begin to question their own judgment on these matters and then compound um, the frustration that they're feeling. So I wrote chapters in the second half of the book. What is some of the baggage you have to clean up if you're a late bloomer and you feel frustrated by that and you haven't yet found that perfect intersection of your, of your God-given gifts and your, your, your deepest sense of passion or mission, as I like to call it? And one of them is self-doubt. Now, popular culture, I think, does a disservice by um, trying to skate over self-doubt, trying to puff yourself up in an artificial way, look in the mirror, repeat the following phrases, do that every day, and you'll soon be free of self-doubt. And uh, that'll work until it doesn't work. It, you know, it might be something that gets you through a, a, a rough patch, um, but it won't work over the long term. The long term is how do you turn self-doubt from something you fear into something you can use? Because self-doubt is always bringing you information. And, but, but we panic and we don't want to hear that information because what happens when we feel self-doubt, we immediately put it onto the, the, onto the negative side of our self-worth. And if we can build a wall around our self-worth and separate it off from our self-doubts, and this is where it's really important to have mentors, and this is where it's important to have loved ones, and this is, I would even go as far as saying, it's an enormous advantage to believe, to have a faith in a higher power. Because when you have all of those going for you, you know that your self-worth is not something that is, can be argued away. It is inherent. And that just makes it easier to resist the temptation to let a self-doubt nick away at our self-worth. Well, if we can do that, and then we unpack self-doubt, self-doubt is bringing us information. It's telling us maybe we're not as prepared for this particular project as we should be. It's telling us maybe then trying to do all things in our organization, we should concentrate on the thing that we're good at and hire good people around us. It could be telling us any number of things. The product isn't ready to release or the product is ready to release um, and you just, you know, you've got to step up and pull the trigger. There are all kinds of things that self-doubt is telling us if we don't let it infect our self-worth and then respond in a panic to self-doubt. And the other thing is this idea of quitting. Now, nobody should wake up in the morning and, 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 and quit every tough challenge that comes their way. Um, nobody wants to be a serial quitter. But sticking with something that isn't working well past the time that we should have taken an alternative path is equally foolish. You know, we shouldn't feed our failures. We should cut off our failures and feed our successes. There's 
an economic idea here of a sunk cost fallacy. Sometimes we think because we put so much time and money into an effort that might not be producing results, then if we walk away in a different direction, all that money and and time is wasted. It's never wasted. Right. It's educational is what it right. is. Right. So you look at some of the great serial entrepreneurs like Richard Branson. He's quit a lot of businesses. You look at uh, my favorite example of Silicon Valley was Intel getting out of the memory chip business and betting it all on the microprocessor business at a time when the memory chip business is their cash cow. But if you looked into the future, you could see it was you know, not going to go in a good direction. And so we love those stories of people like Richard Branson or Andy Grove at Intel, and, and yet we're afraid to apply those very same lessons to ourselves. So learn the strategic value of quitting, when to quit. Not, that isn't the same as becoming a serial quitter. And learn how to deal with your self-doubt in a productive way because it is yielding a library of information that can really help you move forward if you're only willing to listen to what it's telling you. This is Tom Laurie. You're listening to The Mentors Radio. We're with Rich Carlgaard today, the author of Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. But you've met a lot of people over the course of your career and life. Uh, I have as well. Everyone suffers from self-doubt. I think there's this fallacy, uh, and certainly people put on this facade that they're 100% 100% confident, and confidence is good. It shows well. But everyone runs through self-doubt. I've got a gazillion stories about people that are well-known that call me, and they've, we all, this is something we live with. This is part of our humanity. Yeah, somebody from the world of sports that might be more broadly recognized in some of the names in business was the great San Francisco 49ers football coach of the of the 1980s and early 90s, Bill Walsh, who took over a a moribund franchise and turned it around in three years to win the first of three Super Bowls. And then, as importantly, left it in the condition that his successor could win two more. And Bill Walsh, uh, I got to know him quite well. Um, He wrote a column for me when I was editing one of Forbes' magazines, and I would go visit him and we would get a tape recorder going, and he, we would, he would talk through the column, and I would edit it, and he would do the final edits. And this is a man, he was very cerebral. Um, a lot of people said he had a professorial way about him, and that's true. But he was also a man racked with self-doubt. You know, I was kind of surprised the first time I met him. I thought he would have this sort of military general's bravado. But then when I've met military generals, I've found the same thing. The really good ones like Stanley McChrystal. You know, always put his self-doubt out front and center. A good venture capitalist, I interviewed uh, one of the great ones, John Doerr of Kleiner Perkins. And I was making the comment, um, "What uh, you've bet on this industry and bet on that industry. He said, whoa, 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 I never bet. He says, I look at an opportunity, and then when I decide to invest based on the opportunity and the people running it, and I might have to make a lot of uh, changes there, then my job is to confront all the things that are bugging us, all the self-doubt, and methodically take one brick of risk out at a time. Right. And you can only do that if you look at look at the negative. Yeah, you have to have the long-term positive, but you have to have kind of the short-term negative, this could go wrong, and that means confronting your self-doubt. Now, in your book, uh, and I wanted to make sure I get this in before we lose time, you write about the uh, woman who is a co-founder of VMware. Yes. Tell a little bit about her journey. 
Yeah, Diane Green, I think, is one of the most unheralded um, people in Silicon Valley who's worthy of uh, Silicon Valley Mount Olympus. Um, she f- co-founded VMware in her 40s, um, uh, ran it for 10 years. VMware today has a market value of about $60 billion. Um, then she founded another company that Google bought, and until January this year was the CEO of Google Cloud in her middle 60s. Now, Diane Green, as a child, she, she didn't even get serious about her academic career until her early 30s. She, was a, she participated in sailboat racing. She worked at Coleman Camper, Camper uh, for crying out loud. Um, jobs like that. And then finally at age 33, she said, now nah, it's time to get serious about my adult life. Didn't stop her. That's great. Well, we're going to leave a little bit more time for segment five. And this is Tom Laurie with Rich Carlgard, who is the author of Late Bloomers. Like us on Facebook at TheMentorsRadio.com. You will find all of our show notes and links at MentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. And I believe Rich has some kind of a way for you to communicate with him on a website or something. We'll give you that. Uh, This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and we are with Rich Carlgaard, best-selling author and the publisher for Forbes, and we've been talking about late bloomers. Now, you mentioned, and we're going to cover it quickly because I, got, I, got, I probably have 50 more questions, but we only have about four or five more minutes, <laughs> is... And I think it's important for late bloomers to understand that those six strengths that you talk about, that late bloomers, they come with as you get older. Yeah. I wanted to know if late bloomers had strengths uh, versus early bloomers. And and I came up with six where the anecdotal evidence, at least, is that late bloomers have these qualities in greater abundance than than early bloomers, probably because they're hard won. Uh, because the uh, early bloomer begins to develop this mythology about why they succeeded, and uh, all too many of them stop growing at a certain point. So what is it about the people who keep growing and keep blooming, who aren't just late bloomers but serial bloomers? Well, number one, they have a great curiosity. Um, In fact, uh, Fortune magazine, not Forbes, but Fortune in its annual Best Places to Work issue, asked some high-profile CEOs what they valued most in their employees. And the word that came up most often was curiosity. Now, these are CEOs of Genentech, Intuit, successful companies like that. Um, Compassion is another one. Um, It's possible that uh, you ask why. Well, early bloomers, um, all you have to do is spend a lot of time in Silicon Valley, and you see that what lacks among many of these early successful people is any sense of empathy. You know, they, they, they were successful from the get-go, and, um, and I think they come to believe in their own um, story about why they're successful as opposed to the real story, which might be more, you know, more complicated and certainly more interesting. And so therefore they lack tolerance for people who aren't as smart as they are and as uh, quickly accomplished as they are. Um, resilience is another one. Equanimity or the ability to stay calm under pressure is really important. Think about <clears throat> two events that caught the public eye over the last few years, uh, both involving 
jet airplanes, commercial airliners. One was Captain Sullenberger hitting the flock of birds after the takeoff from LaGuardia and then successfully landing the plane in the Hudson River and getting everybody out, including the crew, safely. <clears throat> then another one was a Southwest Airlines plane uh, on its way to Philadelphia that blew an engine. The engine exploded. The shrapnel went through the window. It killed a woman sitting uh, next to the window, and, um, and the pilot landed the plane safely, Tammy Jo Schultz. Captain Sullenberger and Captain Schultz. Sullenberger was 58 and Schultz was 56. You know, when they did these extraordinary uh, feats of staying calm under pressure. Um, wisdom the, is another attribute. Uh, Elkanen Goldberg, a neuroscientist at New York University, noticed in his own life that in his late 60s, he was able to reach these intuitive conclusions about problems that was faster and just as accurate as if he had worked through a formal logic tree to reach the same conclusion. And he said, what is it? Why, am I, why, is my, why are my intuitions better today, more accurate, my late 60s and now early 70s than they were when I was young? And he posited this theory that the, the two hemispheres of the brain, the intuitive and the logical side, are constantly developing these new, new neural pathways so that even though we lose a little bit off our fastball, our neurological fastball as we get older, you know, the, the communication between our logical side and our intuitive side actually gets better. Mm. So what has surprised you the most since the book came out? I'm surprised that uh, for the people who discovered my book, Late Bloomers, how passionate many of them feel. And I would say of the most passionate of the passionate are parents and usually mothers of teens and young adults because they're wondering why their teens and young adults aren't blooming in the way they're supposed to be blooming. And they're also thinking about themselves, that maybe they've sacrificed their career um, to be a parent and now they have to think about what are they going to do when they get back into the workforce in their 40s, 50s. And last question that I love to ask all of my guests and all the people that you've met, what is the one attribute that you found that characterizes those that are the happiest? Wow, that's a good question. The happiest versus the most accomplished. Um, the happiest have uh, the, the happiest have a faith. Um, it could be a, a faith in God. It could be a different kind of a faith, but they're they're content that uh, they were put here to do something and they've done it. Great. Thanks for the wrap up. That's it. Until next week, at the same time, our guest today has been Rich Cargard, the publisher and columnist for Forbes. We've been talking about late bloomers. Thank you, Rich, for joining us in the studio. Remember, if you tuned in late, you can listen to this and past shows by downloading podcasts by going to our website, www.thementorsradio.com. When you're there, please make it easy for yourself and subscribe to future shows. Thank you for listening. We will be back next weekend at this time for the next edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Tom Laurie signing off for today. Remember to be all that you can be and keep the candle lit for those who struggle in the darkness. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.